chapter 5, I have some really, really exciting news this morning. The Lord is faithful, and we are, Lord willing, going to finish the epistle of 1 John this morning. I thank the Lord for what He has done through the preached Word in our congregation and His faithfulness as we've attended this marvelous work of the Apostle John by the Holy Spirit. The topic of today's sermon is confidence in life and assurance in death. Confidence in life and assurance in death. The objective of today's sermon, generally speaking, is to know as followers of Christ that we can know that we are saved, protected, and cared for in this life and the life to come. And more specifically, that by knowing who Christ is and what he has done for us, we can have confidence amidst all the trials and heartaches that attend us in this fallen world. And that we can have an unshakable assurance now that we dwell with him there in the perfect world to come. The Apostle John, in the conclusion of this epistle, is reminding us of the treasure trove of the riches that belong to us in Christ. Riches that we must remind ourselves of throughout our journey in this wilderness as we make our way to the Father, where Christ is at his right hand. If you're keeping notes, it's going to be in four sections. I promise it won't be long. Point number one, given the treasure. Point number two, seeing the treasure. Point number three, adoring the treasure. And then point number four, guarding the treasure. So we have been given the treasure, then we see the treasure, then we adore the treasure, then we guard the treasure. That is the general outline of today's message. Although we're just looking at verses 20 through 21, I want to read in context, starting in verse 13. This is the great conclusion of the Apostle John's epistle this morning. He says this, starting in verse 13. Read with me if you're able. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who was born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And here's our verses for this morning. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son. 
Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Let us ask one more time for the Lord to help us. Father, we ask you to help us once more as we consider these verses that you have so much truth packed into. Let us even begin to understand that which you have disclosed to us and have prepared for us this morning in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and ask. Amen. Well, what is the difference between a treasure and a treasure trove? One might think, as I did, a, a treasure trove is a container, a box or a chest that holds a treasure. Sounded reasonable to me, but the word actually contains much more than that. A treasure may be defined as a collection of valuable things which make up a singular treasure, whereas a treasure trove is a collection of treasures. I found a definition that was helpful in an etymology dictionary under treasure trove, which says this, meaning a treasure trove, usually meant an ancient hoard. The term came to mean treasure hoard in popular use. What we have today, what we've actually had in this entire conclusion of John's epistle is indeed a treasure trove, a treasure hoard, a collection of treasures. But we know this from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that in Christ is hidden the whole treasure hoard, the whole treasure trove. Paul, when he was writing to the Colossians, said in chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And he goes on to say, For all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as we consider that Christ himself is that treasure trove, and they're breaking this sermon up into four parts, that we're given this treasure, we see this treasure, and then we adore this treasure, and then we guard this treasure, that this treasure is the Lord Jesus Christ, amidst all the other truths that John has given us. But for some further context, I want to share with you an early church father who was wrestling and battling with those false teachers who had crept into the early church upon whom John is actually writing this epistle. When he says, guard yourselves in this epistle, when he talks about false teachers, when he talks about antichrists who have crept into the church, we've seen this throughout his epistle. Remember, who is he talking about? Those proto-Gnostic teachers who were teaching a different Christ, who were preaching a different gospel, all counterfeit. And so John, with apostolic authority, is writing this epistle to remind his church, to regard his children, his little ones, his beloved ones, of the true gospel, of the true Christ, of the true Christian ethic and walk. 
And so as we listen to Irenaeus beginning as an introduction to this sermon, I want you to think about what we've read in this epistle of John. The context that John was writing in, and then we'll eventually springboard into our context, which is not too different today. Listen to what Irenaeus wrote in his famous work Against Heresies, as he wrote in the mid-2nd century about this same Gnostic sect that was teaching a counterfeit Christ. Listen to what Irenaeus says about them. He says this, Such then is their system, theirs is the Gnostic system, which neither the prophets announced, nor the Lord taught, nor the apostles delivered, but of which they boast that beyond all others they have a perfect knowledge. Remember, gnosis means knowledge. So a Gnostic is one who says they have a secret knowledge that you as a Christian should know about. They gather their views from other sources than the scriptures. And to use a common proverb, they strive to weave ropes out of sand. While they endeavor to adopt with an air of probability to their own peculiar assertions, the parables of the Lord. Heretics often weave together stories that may sound probable, even as they show you scripture verses, but do not accord to the apostolic doctrine. They say the sayings of the prophets and the words of the apostles, they twist them in order that their scheme may not seem altogether without support. In doing so, however, they disregard the order and the connection of the scriptures. I would argue he's claiming sola scriptura there. And so far as in them lies, they dismember and destroy the truth. By transferring passages and dressing them up anew and making one thing out of another, they succeed in deluding many through their wicked art in adapting the oracles of the Lord to their own opinions. Their manner of acting is just as if one, when a beautiful image of a king has been constructed by some skillful artist out of precious jewels, that's the scriptures giving us the true image of Christ, they then take this likeness of the man all to pieces, and they arrange the gems, and so fit them together as to make them into the form of a dog or of a fox, and even that but poorly executed, and should then maintain them into the form of a dog, and declare that this was the beautiful image of the king which the skillful artists constructed. Pointing to the jewels which had been admirably fitted together by the first artist, that's the apostles, to form the image of the king, but have been with bad effect transferred by the latter one to the shape of a dog, and by thus exhibiting the jewels should deceive the ignorant who had no conception what a king's form was like, and persuade them that miserable likeness of the fox was, in fact, the beautiful image of the king. What is Irenaeus saying? These false teachers, these Gnostics in the first century, of whom John is warning against, took the true doctrine of Christ, the true treasure, distorted it, and then tried to sell it as being who Christ really is. That's happening today, brothers and sisters. There are many churches who preach a false Christ, and they point at Scripture and say, you see, this is what it says. We need to rightly divide the word of truth. 
And I believe this is the context which brings us in to our verses this morning, which conclude this treasure which John has given us. So as we have that as the context of the letter and the context of these verses, let us consider the beginning of verse 20. This is our first heading, given the treasure, verse 20a. In the fullness of time, the son has come and gifted his own with the knowledge of God. John writes this, and we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding. This is indeed the sixth affirmation as John wraps up his letter. Remember this great conclusion to John's epistle, which began in verse 13 with the purpose statement, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. After revealing the purpose, intent, and motivation for his writing to us in this entire epistle, namely that we should have an assurance of our salvation he starts to catalog some of the treasures in this trove gifted to us by the Holy Spirit. And we'll just recall them. Verse 15, we know that he hears us, treasure number one. We know that we have the requests which we have asked from him, treasure number two. Treasure number three is we know that no one who is born of God sins. Verse 19, we know that we are of God. Then he goes on to say, we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And now the Apostle John reveals to us in this verse, verse 20, and he makes this great affirmation, the greatest treasure of all, and why it is that we have the ability to run our fingers and marvel at these precious truths in the first place. And it's this. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. These two final affirmations make a total of seven treasures. No coincidence, I believe. A treasure trove, indeed. So let us look at... We know that the Son of God has come. Listen to what John Gill says about we know that the Son of God has come. I think he gets it right. The second person in the Godhead who is equal to the Father and of the same nature with him is come from the Father, from heaven, into this world by assumption of nature. This is what is meant by we know the Son of God has come. The incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, has assumed a human nature and has come into the world. And the Apostle John is saying, we know that he has come. We're not like other Jews who would say, is this the Christ? Is this the promised one who was to come? No, we know that it is the Son of God who has come, Jesus Christ. <coughs> and he has given us understanding. That famous medieval commentary called the Glossa Ordinaria says, For the Son reveals both who appeared in visible flesh, the mystery of divinity revealed to the world through the gospel. Get some water. Sorry, brother. <coughs> 
I will recall to you Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. Turn there if you're able. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. As we consider what the apostle is saying when he says, the son has given us understanding. Thank you. Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says this, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son. And here it is. And anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. Yes. We only know the Father because Christ revealed him to us. And we only know the Son because the Father has chosen to reveal him to us. Think about that. You will never get to the end of the depths of that. We only know the Father because Christ reveals him to us. And we only know the Son because the Father has chosen to reveal him to us. But this shouldn't be a surprise to us who've been in the Gospel of John, who know the nature of the New Covenant, because this was the promise of the New Covenant all the way back in the Old Testament. We've looked at it before. We'll look at it again. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. You don't have to turn there. But God said this all the way back in the Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. The old covenant, he goes on to say. For they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins. I will remember no more. This was revealed in the Old Testament, that the new covenant would not be like the old covenant. Remember, you could be a member of the old covenant and not be saved. You could be a physical descendant of Abraham and rightly say, I'm a covenant member. But no one can be in the new covenant without the spirit indwelling them, without being saved and say, I am rightly a new covenant member. This has major implications, which we won't go into now. But this is where a robust covenant theology helps us to understand such things as who should be baptized in the new covenant, believers alone or believers and their children. But I digress. What I do want you to notice now is that the Apostle John follows up with yet another purpose statement. Jesus Christ has given us understanding. He is the one who has given us understanding to know him, to know God. Remember, no one knows the Father except the Son and who the Son chooses to reveal him. But there's a purpose statement that John follows up with here. He says... But there's a reason. What is the reason? Why has, God why has God given us this knowledge? Answer, so that we may know him who is true. And this takes us to part B of verse 20. Look with me. So that we may know him who is true. 
And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. Theological observation. Him who is true. Him who is true. True in John's gospel has a technical meaning when connected with Old Testament concepts. This is going to be a little bit of a study in hermeneutics and how we are to read our Bibles. And brothers and sisters, I believe when you follow this path, your heart becomes inflamed as you read the Old Testament because you start to see Christ in places where you didn't see him. Just like those disciples on the road to Emmaus when, he said, when they said, didn't our hearts burn in us when he showed us in all these places in the Old Testament where it speaks of him. And we may think, well, okay, I know some of those places. Isaiah 53. But brothers and sisters, Christ is all over the Old Testament. He said so himself. They testify about him. And so when John says... So that we may know him who is true, that that is the purpose for why Christ has revealed to us these things. There's an Old Testament import that's happening here. True in John's gospel has a technical meaning, which connects with the Old Testament. Think about John's gospel. In John 1.9, John says Jesus is the true light. Why does he say that? As, as contrasted with the false light, that could be true. But what's more is that Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. In the Old Testament, that was Israel's commission, to be a light to the Gentiles. Israel was to be so. And Jesus is now the fulfillment of it. He is the one who would be a light to the Gentiles. I think most of us in here are not of physical descent from Abraham. We are Gentiles. Why are we here? It's because of Jesus Christ. He is the true light. And he is why we are sitting here this morning. G John will call Jesus the true bread. Why does he keep putting true before these things? Israel was given manna, bread from heaven, to eat in the wilderness. But Jesus is now the fulfillment of it. He is the bread that came down from heaven. Not for our physical sustenance like the manna, but for our spiritual sustenance, for our salvation. John, in his gospel, chapter 15, verse 1, calls Jesus the true vine. Why does John keep putting the word true before these descriptors? It's because he's looking back to the Old Testament and saying all of those pictures and shadows were types of him who was to come. Israel was God's vineyard. But Jesus is now the fulfillment of it. We've said before that Jesus is true Israel. He is the true vine. He is the true bread. He is the true light. Yes, one commentator says, Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes and expectations. 
theological language, Jesus is the antitype of what was promised in the Old Testament types. Philosophical language, Jesus is the New Testament substance of the Old Testament shadows. Simple language, Jesus is the New Testament reality of the Old Testament pictures. So as we read our Old Testaments, we're seeing a picture show which has Christ behind it all. One amazing way this was brought to my attention as I'm studying this passage was in Isaiah 55, a verse that I have learned and memorized and know very well. But let's all turn there as a congregation just to show us in some ways which these truths come out in marvelous fashion. Again, how we are to read the Old Testament. Isaiah 55. We know this very well. Starting in verse 8. Isaiah writes this, and it's truly the Lord who is speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen to verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace, the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, I have read this verse many times. In fact, I even quoted it today in our corporate prayer, if you remember. And I said, Lord, we ask these things because we know that your promises will not return void because you have promised that. And that is true. God's word goes forth and it accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. But let me ask you a question. When you read the word of the Lord or my word will not return to me void, what do you think of? I primarily think of the scripture. But Jesus is the word made flesh. My word, so my word be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty. Interesting concept there. My word will not return to me empty. Do you see any connection between Jesus and the apostles when he says, I must go back to the Father? Jesus is the Word made flesh who came to earth in the Incarnation and was being sent back to the Father. And what is God saying in this verse? Just that the Scriptures will not return to Him empty? I believe there's much more. It's that His Son will not return to Him empty without accomplishing what I desire. What did He desire? That He would be a light to the Gentiles. That He would bring salvation to His people without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. What was the purpose that the Father sent the Son, brothers and sisters, to save us? (laughs) 
for you will all go out with joy and will be led forth in peace. Brothers and sisters, are you led forth in peace and joy this morning, hearing an interpretation from the Old Testament that maybe you had not seen Christ before? I am. I'm encouraged. My heart burns when I read places in the Old Testament that I have read so many times before, and I see Christ. And this is what the Apostle John is doing in this verse. So that we may know him who is true. That is seeing the treasure. The treasure of the Son was hidden and foretold and promised in the Old Testament. And so when the apostles started to read their Old Testaments after the ascension of our Lord, after learning hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible from Jesus, then they wrote the New Testament showing us how to do the same. We should interpret the Old Testament like the apostles interpreted the Old Testament. Because that is the way that Jesus taught them to interpret the Old Testament. And that is the context behind all the battles in the Gospels between the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There was a battle on how do you interpret the Old Testament? And Jesus would say, you look to the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify about me. So brothers and sisters, as a quick word of application, when you read your Old Testament, look for Christ. He is the treasure that is hidden there. He is the pearl of great price. As we've already begun to do, we're starting to adore the treasure, are we not? We have been gift, gifted the treasure, given the treasure by Christ. Now we have seen the treasure. We've opened up that chest and seen the treasure hoard. In fact, many chests. But Christ is that one who all the treasures are hidden in. Now we see him. And once you see him, brothers and sisters, you adore him. And that brings us to our third section. Adoring the treasure. The treasure of the sun is beyond popular expectations then and now. Who the Christ is, is beyond what was thought of by the Old Testament saints in the first century. And it's even beyond those who think they know who Christ is today. This is what John says in the last part of verse 20. This is the true God and eternal life. Who do you think the Messiah is? He's a great teacher. He's a prophet like unto Moses. He is the bread of life that gives us sustenance. He is the true vine, God's vineyard, who if we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. Yes, indeed. But he is just not the Messiah. He is the God-man. This is the true God and eternal life. And here we adore. The word this is a demonstrative pronoun that points to the nearest, most natural antecedent. And that antecedent is Jesus Christ. There are battles about this verse, brothers and sisters. People will say, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus is not the true God who is being spoken of here. It's the Father. We are in him who is true in his son. Okay, who's the his there? It's the Father, right? His son, the Father. We are in him, Jesus Christ, 
who is true in his son, the father's son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. See, it's the father who's the true God, not the son. This is what false teachers will do. This is what the Gnostics were doing in the first century. But listen to the linguistic argument. This is a demonstrative pronoun that points to the nearest and most natural antecedent. And who is that? Jesus Christ. Yes, the Father is spoken of, but then is spoken the Son. Listen to what John Gill says again. I think he's helpful. This is the true God and eternal life. That is the Son of God, who is the immediate antecedent to the, rel to the relative this. He is the true God with his Father and the Spirit in distinction from all false, fictitious, or nominal deities. Christ is truly and really God, as appears from all the perfection of deity, the fullness of the Godhead being in him, from the divine works of creation and providence being ascribed to him, and from the divine worship that is given to him, as well as from the names and titles he goes by, particularly that of Jehovah or Yahweh, which is incommunicable means cannot be given to any other creature. He is called eternal life because it is in him and he is the giver of it to his people. Notice this, John chapter 17, Jesus prays for his people that they may know you, Father, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, he says. This is eternal life that they may know you, Father, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And false teachers will make a big deal about that and say, you see, the Father is the one true God, not the Son. There's a problem with that because Jesus now is call, or John is now calling Jesus the true God and is even calling him eternal life. And what John means to communicate by this epistle is that the Father and the Son are both the one true God. That the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all Yahweh, one in substance and in being with the Father. This is not a surprise. John has confessed these things throughout his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yes, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became flesh, truly God and truly man. Yes, the Trinity is what we confess. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of one substance, one power, one eternity, each having the whole divine essence, and yet the divine essence undivided. That should make you marvel at this Messiah that we worship. He is not just the Messiah. He's not just the Christ. He is not just the perfect man. He is the God-man. Someone asked once, what if Adam never disobeyed? Would we be all in paradise, in eternity, sinless with him? Yes. That is the, that is the, uh, the implication. Adam was our first federal head. And if he would have obeyed, he would have received a glorified body, just like our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, being his, his progeny, would have been united to him. 
But let me ask you one question. What is better, to be united to a glorified man or to be united to a glorified God-man? That's the difference. And that's why it is better that we are united to Christ than a sinless Adam. We receive more from Christ than a sinless Adam could have ever given us. So what do we do with this? We've been given this treasure. We've seen the treasure. We're now adoring the treasure. What does John say? Something that seems very strange. Look at the last verse, verse 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now that may have seemed very strange before our sermon series in 1 John. It may have seemed very strange before this sermon. It seems kind of disjunct, uh, there's a disunity, a kind of out of left field. John throws in this last line after saying these marvelous things about the Son and about our understanding Him, our being gifted, the knowledge of God in Him. Then he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Well, if it's not clear... Again, listen to that medieval commentary of the Glossa Ordinaria. Little children, beware. And since you know the true God and true man, and you hope for eternal life, beware of the doctrines of heretics who put up themselves the look of holiness, who by crooked doctrine change the glory of the incorruptible God into the likeness of corruptible things. That's what Paul wrote in Romans. Paul gave a very similar charge to Timothy. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Gnosis, the Gnostic teachers. You see, this is the context of the whole, the whole New Testament. There's a battle going on for who Christ is by these false teachers who were teaching a counterfeit Christ. Paul says again to Timothy in his second epistle, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Brothers and sisters, you've been entrusted a treasure. The treasure is the knowledge of the Son of God. Are you guarding it? Are you defending it? Remember what the Gnostics were doing. They were teaching a counterfeit Christ. They were offering an idol which went by the name of Jesus Christ. Remember what Irenaeus said about these false teachers, the proto-Gnostic antichrists. Remember, he said they dismember and destroy the truth, and they succeed in deluding many through their wicked art in adopting the oracles of the Lord to their own opinions. But the Apostle John is very familiar with the Old Testament, and he knows that you become like that which you worship. John's epistle is not just about, not just have been about disclosing to us the true Christ, but also the true Christian ethic, how we should walk as Christians. And John knows that which you worship, you become like. Psalm 115 will tell you about that. If you worship an idol, you become more and more like that idol. And if you worship the one true God, you become more and more like the one true God. Knowing this, is it any wonder that the Apostle begins this epistle by confessing the true humanity of Jesus Christ and then concludes this epistle by confessing his true deity? And this will be in conclusion. John 
in chapter 1 says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. What is he saying? Jesus Christ was truly man. We truly saw him and we truly touched him. We ate with him. We slept. We walked. We traveled. We learned from him. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't some kind of spirit that didn't have a body. He wasn't just a man who the Christ spirit then descended upon and then left at the crucifixion. No, it was the man, Christ Jesus. That's what he says in verse 1 of this epistle. And in the second to last verse of this epistle, he says, His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God. Little children, guard yourselves from idols, lest you become like them and perish. Rather, turn to the true Christ, truly man and truly God. Become more and more like him through the work of the Holy Spirit and have confidence amidst all the trials and heartaches that attend us in this fallen world, as well as an unshakable assurance that you will dwell with him in that perfect kingdom to come in its fullness when he returns. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that is what we are proclaiming, his death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this treasure trove of truth. Lord, I trust that your people have seen your son, Jesus Christ, truly man and truly God. And that those of us here who confess that truth can only do so because he has revealed you to us and you have re you have chosen to reveal him to us thank you father for your decree which has taken in such lowly wretched sinners like us and entrusted to us this treasure trove of truth your son jesus christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of knowledge in your word is truth and your son the word made flesh is the embodiment of it oh lord help us as we read our bibles to see your son jesus christ more clearly lord as we gather here and hear your word preached let us trust and rest in your son jesus christ more fully and Lord, as we receive the ordinances that you have prepared for us, even this Lord's Supper, which is before us now, let us eat it in true faith, knowing that we are proclaiming his death until he comes, knowing that when he arrives, we shall be like him when he appears, for we will see him as he is, and we will forever be with our Lord. And he will gather us together and we will meet him in the clouds and we will reign with him on a new earth forever and ever because we are your people now. We are your children now. Let that be an assurance to all of us who are doubting our salvation. Let that be the truth that we hold with both hands that no matter what we experience in this fallen world, that your son, Jesus Christ, is our surety. And you've given us proof of that by granting us the Holy Spirit as our down payment. And if you, Lord, have given your son, will you not freely give us all things? 
Oh, Lord. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for this supper in which we now partake in his body, in flesh, in spirit, and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.